The late 1960s. This was a time like no other in America. Days of high hopes. I have a dream. Some men see things as they are and say why. I dream things that never were and say why not. And desperate days of crisis. Well, I'm not a crook. 1967 brought Hate ashbury and the so-called Summer of Love. And then, 1969 dawn. And the whole world changed with Woodstock and a man on the moon. It was only 40 years ago, but it's hard to imagine how different our culture was in those days. Hippies, yippies, yahoos, and wahoos declared the dawn of a new nation. You know, we're all one huge happy family. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what is the next step? What lies beyond the summer of love? Over several weeks, we will explore singleness, dating, marriage, divorce, and more. We'll discover how the principles God provides us in the Bible for our relationships can help us not only enjoy a summer of love, but a lifetime of love. So let's join Pastor Skip now for the message, Relationships, the Antidote to Loneliness, part one of our series, Beyond the Summer of Love. Would you turn in your Bibles tonight to have ready as a reference Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Now as was mentioned, over 40 years ago there was this thing called the summer of love. It wasn't 40 years ago, it was 42 years ago. 1967 was dubbed the summer of love. That was the summer for love-ins and sit-ins and be-ins and protests. It was a time of rebellion, socially and politically. It gave young people uh, an excuse to rebel against the systems. There's a lot of different mantras, sex, drugs, rock and roll. And it sort of started in a little town in Northern California called San Francisco, in a neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury. And my brother was actually, I was just a little tyke. It's like it bypassed me. I just saw the news clips. But he actually lived in San Francisco during that maddening era when a 100,000 people converged on the neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury and this whole thing exploded. And it just sounded to young people back then so cool and so hip and so fresh. And they shouted out things like, free love, of course, it's never free. Somebody will pay for it eventually. Or all you need is love, as one of the songs of that era said. Or as Timothy Leary said, and it became coined, tune in, turn it, uh, on, and drop out. And he advocated LSD. It was a social experiment. It was an experiment that failed miserably. And here's why. If you were to track the ongoing relationships of the free love and all you need is love generation, and you saw what happened to those relationships over time, you would find litters of broken lives and divorce. So, here's the question. How do we have relationships that last beyond a summer? How do you find real love? 
How do you build something that lasts a lifetime rather than just a short time? That's what this series is all about. We want to talk about singleness, dating, marriage in the early stages, rules for relationships to build healthy marriages, what happens when there is divorce, how do you manage through that time, remarriage, etc. We want to cover all of those stages. But the real question is going to be this. How do we beat the odds? How do we beat the odds, the norm, the standard of what is going on in a culture around us where broken relationships are all around us and love does just last a summer? How do we beat the odds of this enormous divorce rate that is wreaking havoc on generation after generation after generation. I was handed some statistics by a staff member this week that I found really interesting, uh, some that I had never really considered before. There was a survey done in Australia that tracked 2,500 married couples from the year 2001 to 2007 or 8 and just watched what happened and observed and this series of couples took part in this survey. And they discovered husbands who are nine years or more older than their wife is twice as likely to get divorced than husbands who get married by the age or before the age of 25. Their conclusion is those who get married a bit younger have a better chance. Here's something else. In a marriage, women who want kids much more than their husbands are more likely to get a divorce than those who have talked through and agree on that. Also, a couple's parents play into this impact. 16% of those parents who separated or divorced, their children will also separate or divorce as compared to 10% of couples whose parents did not separate or divorce. Something else. Those who are working on their second or third marriage are 90% more likely to separate than those who are working on and stick with their first marriage. Money plays a role. 16% of those couples who have indicated that they were poor or where the husband was unemployed, not the wife, the husband, separated or divorced. Only 9% of those who had a healthy grip on their finances did not. And couples with one partner who smoked while the other didn't smoke are more likely to have marital failure. These are things I didn't know about. So those are some of the new odds and perhaps little quirky but true statistics. So how do we beat the odds? How do we enjoy lasting relationships? I want you to consider with me, it's a good place to start to talk about relationships, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Familiar words of Solomon, who writes a beautiful ode to friendship, companionship. And he begins in verse 7 of chapter 4, Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all of his labors. Nor is his eye satisfied with riches, but he never asks, For whom do I toil? And deprive myself of good. This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Two are better than one. Because they have a good reward for their labor. 
For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And a threefold cord, or a cord of three strands, is not quickly broken. Tonight I'm just going to talk about relationships and something in general. And next week we're going to get more specific, beginning with singleness. So, here we are in a culture, a sea of broken relationships. Some that last a summer, some that last a few summers, but then they end. Here's the first question. Is there a deeper problem? Is there a deeper problem? I submit to you there is a much deeper problem. I want to go below that surface. And let me start here. Several years ago, I did something that I had never did before and I have never done since. I took a poll of this congregation in its earlier stages. And I simply asked people to write me a note to write me a question, some question they had about the Bible that they felt they weren't getting a good, adequate, thorough answer for, and that I would do a series of teachings on Sunday morning based upon questions that this congregation posed. And my plan was to get the notes back, categorize them, and launch through a series of answering your questions. Well, I got the notes back, I got the survey back, and... I was a bit shocked. In fact, I was taken aback greatly because I found that there were a lot of questions on eschatology and a lot of questions on speaking in tongues and spiritual warfare and the typical fear that you would get when you open up an audience for such topics. But what I was unprepared for was this overwhelming deluge of questions about how do I have a relationship And I discovered there was a thread running through all of the questions. And the thread was loneliness. Even with married people, the thread was loneliness. That people were unsatisfied in their present relationship with their spouse. Or they were unable to make meaningful, satisfying relationships. And I discovered that most everyone I've ever met at some point has a basic fear. The fear is that they will never find true love, never find somebody who will love them completely for who they are. If they disclose themselves fully, they'll never be truly loved or they'll never be able to give true love to another person. And that produces the undercurrent of this problem, loneliness, the nagging sting of loneliness. Many are lonely people, or as Billy often says, lonely people. Now, if you were asked to describe a lonely person, you might think of an inmate in a prison. You might say, okay, uh, here's a lonely person, Uh, um, uh, a single guy at a bar alone, a divorcee at a bar, or a single guy who can't get a date or an older person living in isolation in a retirement home. All those would be pretty typical pictures of loneliness. 
But that is certainly not the whole story. There are people you'd never expect. In fact, some of the loneliest people may be sitting right next to you right now in church. I want to give you some samples. When I say samples, these are a couple of the notes that I got back in that survey. I got many of them. Here's just a couple of them. Here's uh, from a woman who is married to an unbeliever. And she writes, How do I as a woman deal with a spouse who's not interested in God, Christianity, or church? How do I handle a home life without God and the Christian faith? How do I beat loneliness? People not wanting me. How do I show Christianity when I feel so sad and so lonely? You see, people will often write in a note what they may never say verbally. This is just honest stuff. Another very desperate-sounding Christian said, I write this to you hurting so bad. I even cry myself to sleep. I'm tired of doing that. I still pray every day that I can make it through another day. It's getting ever so hard for me to live. Am I doing something wrong? I don't understand. It's so hard to make friends these days, even with Christians. I tried. Christians can be judgmental, without realizing that Christians are sad too. And just because you're a born-again Christian doesn't mean everything is okay. Now that's just a little sampling of the kind of alienation and isolation, the loneliness that I was talking about. People are unsatisfied in their present relationships or unable to make real, lasting, meaningful relationships. Now from the very beginning... God knew that people needed companionship, relationship, meaningful contacts with others around them. You remember what he said in the very beginning, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper that is comparable to him. I've always found that passage intriguing for a number of reasons. One is that throughout Genesis, God keeps saying everything is good. First day, divides light and darkness, it's good. Then He creates uh, plant life and herb-yielding seed, and He looks at it and says, that's good. And then He does another day, and that's good. And the seas collect in one place, and that's good. The first time God says something isn't good is when He looks at a man. He goes, Dude, not good. Okay, you're good, but you're not good alone. You need a helper. You need help. Now, some women could hear that and go, I don't really like being called a helper. Except that's the very term God used of Himself. The Hebrew word is exactly the same, but translated not helper, but help, when the Bible says God is a very present help in time of need. So God's seeing that man alone wasn't good began his rescue operation. And that was the relationship that he had in mind. And then Solomon here, we just read it, also saw the need for companionship when in Ecclesiastes 4 says two are better than one. But the two in the relationship, and let me be more specific, the two in the dating and then marriage relationship must be 
committed to serving the other person or it's not going to work. It's not going to work. If they enter the relationship and live through the relationship with expectations to be fulfilled, and that is their only focus, instead of how can I fulfill the other person, it's not going to work well. One of the most poignant, amazing, I guess, trying to think of better adjectives than that, uh, things I have ever read by a fiancé, a man to a woman, before they were married, was something that Dr. James Dobson's father wrote to his mother when they were still dating, before they were ever married. And this man had proposed to her. And he wrote her a love note. And I have referred to this many times. I've meditated uh, many times on this in my own marriage. I just want you to hear it. Listen to what this young fiancé says to his soon-to-be wife. Listen to the depth and the understanding in his words. He writes to her, I want you to know and be fully aware concerning the marriage covenant which we are about to enter. I have been taught from my mother's knee and in harmony with the Word of God that the marriage vows are inviolable and that by entering into them I am binding myself absolutely and for life. I am not naive concerning this. On the contrary, I am fully aware that mutual incompatibility or other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I am resolved for my part to accept it as a consequence of the commitment we are now making and to bear it, if need be, to the end of our lives together. I have loved you dearly as my sweetheart, and I will love you as my wife. But above everything else, I love you with a Christian love that demands we never act in such a way so as to hinder our prospects of entering heaven, which is our supreme desire, the desire of both of our lives. Now, that's a great way to say I love you. And that is a mature understanding of two being better than one, of relationship and companionship and togetherness. But really, I don't want to talk about aloneness. I want to talk about loneliness. There's a big difference between aloneness and loneliness. Now, I said the, the underlying problem in a lot of relationships is loneliness. I want to explain that. What is loneliness? How is it different from just being alone? So I looked it up in the Webster's Dictionary. Webster's Dictionary defines loneliness. You know how every dictionary gives you like one, two, or three different definitions? Definition number one in the edition I read. Loneliness is the state of being without company. I disagree with that. I disagree with that definition, and I'll tell you why in a moment. Number two, being cut off from others. Now, that's a little bit closer, but it's a little unsatisfactory still. You see, loneliness is not aloneness. You can be by yourself, in seclusion, away from people, and not be lonely. Everybody needs space. Everybody does. Every person needs their own ability to vent their personality alone sometimes and make meaningful contact with God alone sometimes We need our privacy. That's how we're wired. 
Solitude is an important component in spiritual and mental health. Jesus sometimes got alone from his disciples. Moses was alone episodes of his life. John the Baptist spent some time in solitary, alone. Many of the prophets, Paul, etc. But also, you can be surrounded with people, with lots of activity, and still feel very, very lonely. You see, crowds are no cure for loneliness. You can have people all around you, swarming, talking, but inside feel alienated and isolated and very lonely. Some of the loneliest people I've ever met live in large cities, go to churches filled with people and are married people and still lonely. Albert Einstein once said this, it's strange to be known so universally and yet be so lonely. Can you imagine being a great scientist, a famous scientist, won a Nobel Peace Prize or two in physics, um, influenced the world with his theory of general relativity? And say, I'm lonely. So I'm going to give you a definition. It's the best definition I found of what loneliness is. Didn't come from the dictionary. I didn't come up with it. Wish I did, but I didn't. It's from a pastor named Warren Wiersbe, who was once the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. He said, loneliness is the malnutrition of the soul that comes from living on substitutes. Again, it's the malnutrition of the soul that comes from living on substitutes. When you substitute lust for love, when you substitute money and wealth for what's valuable, when you substitute status for character, that's what he's talking about. Here's a third question I want to address tonight. What produces it? Where does it come from? What produces loneliness? What are some of those substitutes? I want to sum them up by giving you three things that I believe produce what I'm talking about. That underlying problem of loneliness. Three things. Sin, circumstances, and spiritual misconceptions. Sin, circumstances, and spiritual misconceptions. I had to alliterate it. I'm a preacher. First of all, sin. We may not like to admit it, but often lonely people are very self-focused people. It's all about them. They live to please themselves. Thus, they're always the victim in every situation. A famous 12th century Jewish rabbi said, There is none more lonely than the man who loves only himself. That's the sin of pride. And that is the basic problem of everything in the world. It all stems with the sin of pride. The closer we get in touch with that reality, the more we'll be down the road at finding a cure sin. But that's, that's just one. There's also circumstances. There's things in our culture around us that help add to this. For example, mobility. In our culture, about 20% of the population in America moves every year. Because of jobs, because of a number of circumstances, usually employment, what that does is tend to create in people's lives many casual contacts, few close, intimate, accountable friends. Mobility can add to that. Number two is fear. That's another circumstance. Fear. Crime rate goes up. Terrorism is always a threat. Nobody trusts anybody. We put alarms on everything because we're so fearful of what might happen. 
That's also a circumstance. And here's another circumstance, past relationships. You've been hurt. You've been burned. You got close to somebody in the past and they didn't treat you right. So you put the walls up. You don't want people to get too close. You find coping mechanisms and clever um, verbal expressions to push people away. Because you say, I'm never going to let that happen again. So sin, circumstances. And here's the third. I'll spend a little more time on this. Spiritual misconceptions. Spiritual misconceptions. How many of you remember the track put out years ago? Great track by Campus Crusade called Four Spiritual Laws. How many remember that track? Have you ever heard of Four Spiritual Laws? Who has ever heard of that? Raise your hand. That's all? Seriously, I want to see a show of hands. Four Spiritual Laws. You've heard of it. Okay. Wow. I want to give you tonight Four Spiritual Flaws. Four Spiritual Flaws that I have observed many Christians that live under that I think adds to this. Flaw number one. Real Christians shouldn't have problems. I know, that sounds lame. But you'd be surprised how often that shows up in counseling. Well, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't have this problem. I've given my life to Jesus Christ. Somebody once told me, just accept Jesus and everything will be okay. And if I'm really spiritual, I won't experience the problems other people face. Well, it doesn't take long to get that bubble burst. But some people never lose that idea. They never lose that idea. They actually feel that if they were really spiritual Christians, they wouldn't have problems. After all, if Walt Disney can write, and they lived happily ever after, God can do that too. Right? And you will eventually live happily ever after. I want you to know that the end of the story is really good, but it's the end of the story. We're talking heaven, the millennium, all of that. But I I have to clear that up because there is an idea. It's even in a popular book, Your Best Life Now. Your best life won't be now. The Bible never promises that. The Bible promises your best life will be then, there, in the future, in heaven, with Him. It can be a good life. It can be a fulfilled life. It can be a satisfying life. But that's spiritual flaw number one, that Christians shouldn't have problems. Here's the second spiritual flaw. Christians shouldn't show their problems. You might have them, but if you're a person of faith, you won't share them with anyone. Well, I'll tell you what, that produces loneliness right away because now you're not honest with anyone. You can't let your hair down with anyone. You can't get real with anyone. And that's why people will write things like in the notes that I shared rather than vocalize them. And then they'll, they'll just plaster that fake smile, that parade smile. Remember the parades? The queen's always like this. She just has to do this. It's very uncomfortable. It's not real. Spiritual flaw number three. I'm the only one with this problem. Nobody else has it. Nobody else has experienced. They don't get it. I'm the only one who's going through this. It's the Elijah complex. Remember Elijah? He finally said to God, kill me. I'm the only prophet you got, and they're persecuting me. And God said, you're the only prophet. I got 7,000 just like you who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Oh, they've been persecuted too. They've been going through it too. You're not the only person in this camp. Spiritual flaw number four. Church will fix my problem. Church will fix my problem. 
All I have to do is find a church with the right ingredients. Good Bible teaching, good worship, good people. If I sit under great Bible teaching, if I hear inspiring music, worship, and if there's nice people around me, that'll fix my problems. It's good to have all those things, and those are ingredients for change, but not a guarantee that your problems will go away. Case in point, Judas Iscariot. Okay, let's see. Judas Iscariot had the best Bible teacher for three years. Had a pretty good group of people around him, the apostles. I don't know what kind of music they listened to or were singing, but but that was not enough to change Judas Iscariot. He was subjected to truth, but he never applied the truth. Those are all flawed ways of thinking. But it still persists. People think, have you, have you read this latest book? Okay, I, I know the Bible's out there, but this book, this author has all the answers. Or have you heard this new teacher? And they go driving toward the teaching and doctrine of some new upcoming teacher. Same idea. Church will fix my problem. All of those flawed ways of thinking are spiritual misconceptions that add to this lonely sting that I've been talking about that shows up in lots of Christians. And fourth and finally, we ask the question, what is the antidote to loneliness? After all, Solomon says two are better than one, and then he describes it. So what is the antidote? Antidote is simply relationships. Simply relationships. But let me, let me qualify it. Honest relationships. Honest and satisfying relationships will be the antidote to the loneliness that I'm talking about. Plastering some fake smile on, giving a positive confession, that won't be helpful. But honest and satisfying relationships will be the antidote. And let me put it to you this way. There's two things that are needed when I talk about relationships. Vertical connection, horizontal connection. Vertical connection, man to God, horizontal connection, people to people. And maybe the best way to think about this is by looking at a picture of the cross. We're familiar with the cross. Jesus died on the cross. Christians love the cross. But look at this diagram. And notice there's two planes. And and the first plane is that vertical plane of man to God. Firmly rooted relationship with God. Ongoing connection to God. And then also the horizontal plane. Person to person. Meaningful contact and connection with other people. Now the vertical plane is the most important. That's foundational. Jesus spoke about the foolishness of a person trying to live his or her life without the right foundation. He said it's actually like somebody building a house without pouring a cement foundation. They don't connect with God. They don't obey God. They might listen to certain things, but there's no ongoing relational connectivity to God. But he said those who have that, those who have that connection, he said when the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall for it was founded on the rock and that's christ that's a relationship with god through jesus christ like the hymn says on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is sinking sand 
And it's not just the foundation. You say, well, I, I do have a relationship with God. I did pray that prayer. I, I do believe in God. I do trust in Christ. It's more than just that foundation. It's the ongoing connection. John chapter 15, Jesus described our relationship with Him as a connection. A connection. Remember what He said? Abide in Me. Abide in Me. If you abide in Me and I in you, you'll be a fruitful believer. You'll bear much fruit and My Father will be glorified. The Greek word meno, to abide, to maintain an ongoing constant communion with or to remain in. It's more than just the foundation. It's the ongoing connection of abiding in Him. That's the vertical plane. That's the vertical plane. But that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Then there's the horizontal plane. That's connection with other people. Meaningful, authentic connection with other Christians. Now, you've heard us talk about this before. and I don't want to beat this any more than we have in our series already on the church on Sunday morning, but... There are some churchgoers I would only describe as those who listen, learn, and leave. They come and they listen. Or let's put it this way. They land. Okay, they, they, they come and they sit. They land. They listen. Listen to what is being sung and taught. They learn something. They take notes. And, they, and then they leave. And all of those are good things, aren't they? It's good to land, and it's good to listen, and it's good to learn, and it's good to leave. You can't live here. (laughs) But there's something else that is needed, to link with other believers, to, to, to join arms with them, shield to shield, arm to arm, and to march together, to become involved with other people in a very real, meaningful way, And that vertical and that horizontal connection will mitigate against the loneliness we're speaking about. And there's a proverb that I've always loved in this regard, and that's Proverbs 18. begins by saying, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Which begs the question, So how do I stop isolating myself? Answer, Take the first step. Rather than just saying, Nobody will be friendly to me. Nobody ever comes up to me. Nobody ever connects with me. Well, turn that around. You might be surrounded with people who are saying, Nobody comes up to me. Nobody connects with me. So you take the first step. You say, Well, that's risky. Uh Uh-huh. It is risky. But the same proverb, Proverb 18, down in verse 24, continues by saying, A man who has friends must himself be friendly. Must be friendly. So take the first step. Hi, how are you? What's your name? How long have you known the Lord? How can I pray for you tonight? And you strike up a relationship. And even in a large church, that can happen, and I see it happening on an ongoing scale. Now, it is risky. You have been hurt before. Some of you, Christians have hurt you. Churches have hurt you. And let me just say, on behalf of all of the churches who have ever existed from the beginning of church history, as a leader of the church here, I apologize for all of them. But now let's move on. We have a relationship with God, and we have a relationship with flawed, broken, messy people, because we're all that way. 
and we open ourselves up, we dare to get involved, we dare to stay connected, and we dare to work through it. Because the alternative, the alternative of that risk is to live a very isolating, destructive, lonely existence. One author wrote, and I don't know who it is, it's anonymous at this point, some people are like medieval castles. Their high walls keep them safe from being hurt. They protect themselves emotionally by permitting no exchange of feelings with others. No one can enter. They are secure from attack. However, inspection of the occupant finds him or her lonely rattling around in his castle alone. The castle dweller is a self-made prisoner. He or she needs to feel loved by someone, but the walls are so high that it's difficult to reach out or for anyone else to reach in. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Either you're there or you know someone in your circle of relationships that is there. They put up the walls. Maybe you put up the walls. Nobody can get in. It's their way of being safe. It's their defense mechanism. But all the while, they're just rotting away there. So please, take the first step. And the first step is vertically, meaningfully, abiding in Christ, and then horizontally. That's the antidote to this. One of the anthems back in the summer of love was a song by the Beatles called All You Need Is Love. Oh, yeah, they played it over in England, and it was uh, all around the world, a live feed. It was this new magical, all you need is love. And you know what? It's true. All you need is love. But it must be the right kind of love. The Bible calls it agape love. It's the love of God. And I watched hippies from that era who tried all of the summer of love stuff, and it failed. It bombed on them find Jesus Christ, and they lit up. Now they understood love. I'm loved unconditionally by God, and His love has been shed abroad on my hearts, which gives me the ability, the power, to love other people in a very unique and unconditional way. That kind of love is all you need. Something else about our text, it really is foundational. It really is the place to begin if you haven't begun here. Notice that Solomon in chapter 4 talks about verse 9, two being better than one, then he gives you reasons why. And then in verse 12, he says, Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. I love to quote this at weddings. Because every couple will agree that two are better than one. That's why they're getting married. If they thought one was better than two, they wouldn't have said, let's get married. They would have said, let's stay single. But they realize God was right. It's not good that we should be alone. And so they make a commitment because two are better than one. But if that's all that relationship is, two that have committed themselves to being one... If that's all that the marriage has, their fortitude, their commitment, apart from something else, though it may work, it doesn't have all that it could take to make it really work. And that's the threefold cord. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. 
A threefold cord isn't quickly broken. So more than just a husband and wife entwining their lives together and committing to each other, what if a third party could wrap his life, his cord, his rope around that couple? Now it's a threefold cord. And that third cord is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Himself. So, so picture a rope. Picture a rope. A single strand of thread. You hang a weight on it. It can hold the weight. You add a little more weight on it. It breaks. So you take two pieces and bring them together. Now you've doubled, maybe quadrupled the strength depending on the way you wind it. And so you put weights on it and more weights and more weights, but eventually it breaks. But add a third cord and it's much stronger than two. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. The question is, is Jesus Christ woven through as the main part of your life? Because if you want your relationship to work, then as a husband, you seek Jesus. And as a wife, you seek Jesus. And you live to please Him. And then you discover that He wants you to live to please each other. It's going to work. Two is better than one. Three is better than two. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So, it makes sense that to kick off this series, we give you an opportunity. If you've never personally met Jesus Christ before... If you've never personally, individually invited Him to be the Savior of your life, to wash you of your sins, to be your Lord and Master, if you've never personally done that, doesn't matter if you're a good person, you've gone to church, you've done good things in the community, if you've never made that personal invitation, that's the place to begin. That's the vertical plane. That's the vertical connection. And then you'll find the power, the strength, the tools. As you obey Him and you build on that solid foundation, you'll find the right kind of tools to make it through and have not just okay, yeah, we tolerate each other relationships, but I mean great, satisfying, lasting relationships. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time And we thank you that your love is eternal. It lasts far more than a summer. You're all about a relationship. You're all about a connection. We remember the Lord Jesus spoke about the meaningful connection of abiding in the vine and the necessity of those connected to Christ to obey to love, to serve. It cannot be done apart from a work of your grace. It cannot be done by human effort. It must be accomplished by your Spirit. But that is where we allow the gift to come our way, to receive the gift of eternal life, to receive the one who is always available if we call upon his name. Lord, we just want more to come. We want more people to know you. And we pray, Father, if there's someone here tonight who doesn't know you yet or has walked away from you, isn't obeying or walking with you tonight, would come home to Christ, settled in him. And then from that relationship, as that one experiences your love, your power, your ability, your principles, and the fueling of your spirit, 
that other parts of their lives, other relationships they're involved in would flourish, that they would be fruitful because of that abiding. In Jesus' name, amen.